Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now this morning, we're going to take a quick break uh, from our regular exposition through Luke's gospel. And the reason is because starting next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we will begin administering the Lord's Supper as a regular part of our weekly worship service. And I know that many of you have been eagerly uh, waiting for this. And uh, in preparation for that, I thought it would be helpful for us to spend a bit of time uh, getting a deeper understanding of the purpose of really the, the ordinances and sacraments as a whole, which Jesus instructed for the church to administer, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we often separate these two as isolated things that we're just kind of supposed to do. And I think that's really a reflection of our lack of understanding of the theology and the blessing of the sacraments, why God instituted these things and for what purpose and benefit to our souls. And so we want to take the time to first understand deeply the richness and beauty of baptism. And by doing so, I think it'll help whet our spiritual appetites for the Lord's Supper next week. Now, we'll be looking at a couple different passages, but let's begin here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. For context's sake, I'll read from verse 18 down to verse 22. This is what God's word says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because... They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask now that we have turned to your word, that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Reveal to us the things that we must see by faith. Help us to behold your glory, to behold your gospel and the whole counsel of God, that is your holy and living word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances of the church. And by ordinances, we mean that these are the things that Jesus ordained for the church to do. Now, of course, broadly speaking, Jesus ordained for the church to do more than just those two things. He also called the church to preach the word, to make disciples, equip the saints, love one another, etc. But when we say ordinances, we're referring to those two particular rites or customs the church is commanded to observe, which uniquely involve visible and physical elements, water, bread, and wine, or grape juice if you prefer. And before we get into the significance of baptism, it's important for us to first get a grasp of the significance of the ordinances as a whole. Because oftentimes, you know, we, 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 we practice baptism and communion kind of a bit mindlessly without asking, why did God give them to us? What's so special about them? And the answer is this. The ordinances are God's way of visibly and tangibly communicating his grace to us. 
that we might be strengthened in our faith as believers. God has commanded them not as a ritualistic offering for us to perform for him, ultimately, but he has given them to us as a gift for our benefit, to nurture our faith. And this is so essential to grasp because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in the church as though baptism or communion were something that we do for God to to impress him, to give this nice presentation or performance to him. But that couldn't be more backwards. And it might help to understand the particular nuance of the term sacrament. Now, you've heard me use these two terms interchangeably, ordinances and sacraments, and they are effectively uh, interchangeable for practical purposes. They mean the same thing. They at least refer to the same thing, baptism and communion. But between the two terms, the the word ordinance is a more general term. Right? It's just generally describing that this is what Jesus ordained. But sacrament tells us something more. And I think it's unfortunate that many Christians have kind of distanced themselves from this uh, word. And it's because, historically speaking, the Roman Catholic Church kind of ended up sabotaging the word sacrament by turning it into more of a religious ritual devoid of faith in line with their workspace salvation system. And so many believers... Uh, have kind of wanted to disassociate themselves from that word. It's a little complicated, so you can ask me a little later if you want to know more. But I am convinced that this is a classic case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because the term sacrament, in its purest sense, is a wonderful term that's very descriptive and it best conveys the, the beautiful purpose of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because you see, the word sacrament comes from Latin, which means a pledge or an oath. It's a promise. It captures the sense of someone promising to do something for someone. For instance, you know, we say, I don't know how many people say it these days, but I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America if you're a citizen. And that's to say, I promise to be devoted to this country and to do all things in the interest of this nation and its people. And so that's the essence of the term sacrament. It's a promise or a pledge. And so in the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper, a promise or a pledge is being made. But the key question is this. Who is the one making the promise? Who is the one giving the pledge when we observe the sacraments? Many times, we assume that it's us. That we are the ones making the promise to God. We are the ones pledging our allegiance to Him. And so, the way baptism is often seen and done... It's as though the person were saying, I promise, I vow from this day forth to follow Jesus, to to forsake all of my old ways of sin. And I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, there's an element of that in baptism. But how many times have we fallen after our baptism? In fact, it's for that same reason you see people who just constantly want to rededicate their life to Christ, rededicate, rededicate, as though it's all about their efforts, that some people get baptized over and over and over again. Let me just reset. Let me reset. Or, in the Lord's Supper, 
We, we, a lot of times it's, it's administered in a way where we're saying, I promise, I vow to be faithful to Christ. Here's me renewing my vows to you, Jesus, as I take the bread and the cup. I promise I won't sin anymore. How many times do we see Jesus' disciples make promises to him and fall flat on their faces? How many times have we made promises to God and failed? Because we're all weak. We're helpless and powerless in and of ourselves, even as believers, as we walk the life of faith. It's well intended to want to put ourselves in the position of giving our pledge to God. But it's actually upside down, biblically speaking. It's to get the very logic of the gospel turned on its head. Because you see, the gospel is not first and foremost us making a promise to God as though we had to earn his favor and acceptance by seeing how much we can follow through on that promise. The gospel is not a reward for those who are strong, who can keep whatever promise they make by their own willpower, and so earn this prize. No, the gospel is a free gift for the helpless, the powerless. The gospel is God's promise to us, not on the basis of anything in us, but solely on the basis of His grace and undeserved kindness. That you are accepted and pleasing in His sight, perfectly, completely, solely because of what Christ has done and because you have trusted Him. Therefore, live Each day, trusting this good God, obeying His loving commandments, and love Him with all your heart. But how often do we get this order wrong in our minds? All the time. All the live long day. And so it's for this reason that Christ has given His church the sacraments. They are God's way of restoring this logic to us through visual reminders as He confirms and reaffirms his gospel of his pledge and unfailing promise to us. You see, we can define sacraments or ordinances like this. They are visible signs and seals of the grace of God in the gospel to remind us of grace, to to help us remember to embrace the grace of God, to live by the grace of God, and to be strengthened by the grace of God. And this term, sign and seal, comes from Romans chapter 4, verse 11, in reference to the visible and tangible sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham as a guarantee that God would follow through on his promise that Abraham and Sarah would bear a child, and through this offspring, God would bless the whole world. Now, the term sign is to refer to a symbol, a visible symbol that gives a visual depiction of what it represents. And a seal is referring to an an official confirmation or a guarantee of a certain message. It's just like how kings would certify their decrees by stamping with a signet ring, sealing that decree. And so we see that even from the Old Testament, God has always loved to communicate the certainty of his promise through such physical signs. Circumcision was an Old Testament sacrament, as it were. And now in the new covenant, in the full revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ, 
God gives the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper to seal and to guarantee his oath and his pledge that he will never break the promise that he made already fulfilled in Christ. And what is that promise? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That all who have trusted in him have been totally forgiven of sin and are accepted and fully loved by God. That his love is unearned and unchanging on our best days and equally on our worst days as Christians. This is the truth that God wants to saturate us with. The assurance of salvation in the gospel. The confidence that it is as good and free and joyous as God says it is so that we might walk in such joy and thankfulness and praise to God each and every day. You see, this is what's so precious about the sacraments. They are visible and tangible signs. What does that tell you about God's heart? It tells us that God is so determined to reassure His insecure children, all of us, that He not only uses words, but He engages all of our senses. Physical touch, taste, smell, sight. It's visible and it's tangible. It's one thing to tell a troubled child, it's okay, I'm not mad at you. But it's another thing for that child to be held by his father, kissed on the cheek, for the child to to smell the unique scent of his father and be convinced and comforted by his father's loving presence. This is the power of baptism, to be immersed in water, to physically feel on your skin your union with Christ. As Jesus in his baptism had entered the same waters of baptism to become one with the sinners that he came to save. And you see yourself in baptism. It's visible. You see yourself as having entered that same water. That you might be convinced that you are no longer your own, but you are so happily belonging to Christ. And this is the comfort of the Lord's Supper. To taste and to smell of the kindness of Christ through the bread and the wine, the cup that He serves, to see that no matter what our day was like, no matter what our week was like, that Christ invites us warmly to His table, to a meal prepared by Him in love. Church, this is how much Jesus loves His people. This is how much He cares for His sheep. And how much He desires to instill the assurance of His love in us who are so fragile and fickle in our emotions, whose faith is so delicate and weak. Through the sacraments, God communicates and reaffirms His love in such a human way, engaging our five senses. It is like giving the gospel to us, ministering and teaching it to us in 3D. And so this is why the term sacrament is so rich and vivid. They are God's ordained means of reminding us of His unfailing pledge to us by His grace. That He will never leave us nor forsake us. Even if we are faithless, 
He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13 says. Now, with this understanding that we have of the sacraments, of the sign and seal of God's covenant love to us, let's now focus our attention on the first sacrament of baptism in our remaining time. By asking the question, well, in what way does baptism specifically communicate God's grace to us? How does God reassure us of his pledge of faithfulness through this ceremony involving water? You know, this is an important question to ask because God could have chosen a thousand different ways to convey his grace to us. But why did God use water to picture our union with Christ? It's because what the waters represent is a vivid illustration of the whole gospel story that spans the entire Bible. Notice in the passage before us in 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle mentions the days of Noah and the ark in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, where Noah and his family were, it says in verse 20, brought safely through water. And then Peter makes this interesting remark in verse 21, baptism corresponds to this, to the flood in Noah's day. It literally says, baptism is the antitype. Now, I know this is a fancy word. Who knows what it means? Well, basically, it is to say that Noah's flood, the the flood of Noah's day, was the type, was the shadow, the the picture that was pointing to the antitype, which is the substance, the real thing that, that Noah's flood was pointing to. In other words, Peter is telling us that there is a thematic connection between what happened in the waters of the flood and what the waters of baptism represent. Now remember, God never does things arbitrarily. He is a master storyteller. God is the most brilliant author and the most exquisite artist. There is not a single speck that he puts onto the canvas of redemptive history that isn't there for a distinct purpose to accentuate the colors and hues of his glory. And so baptism is a visual storytelling of the gospel, like a children's pop-up book that finds its roots all the way in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, even the very first chapter of the Bible. How? Because God uses water from the beginning to depict both his judgment of sin and His salvation from sin. You see, from the very beginning of creation, we are shown that the waters, on their own, in and of themselves, seem to represent chaos and disorder. As soon as God began His work of creation, God began by doing what? He brought into existence this canvas, if you will, an earth which was formless, And empty, and darkness was over the face of the waters. You see, God began with a watery canvas. But that canvas, this planet, was initially uninhabitable because there was only the deep, dark waters. 
It's like looking at the ocean at night. I know some of you guys have a phobia of, about that. My wife does. Uh, and for good reason, actually, now that I study the Bible more, I should learn from my wife. But you, you see, when, when God created and he brought into existence this canvas, well, the, the, there was no order. There were no laws of nature yet implemented, all of which God would progressively introduce and organize in the next six days through, through bringing forth light, dry land, vegetation, so on and so forth. In fact, that is the glory of creation. It's not just God bringing something, some hodgepodge, uh, into existence out of nothing, which he did, and that is glorious in its own right, but it's that God brings into the waters of chaos order, life, goodness, beauty, design, and purpose. And this is why it's such a big deal that on the second day, what did God do? He separated the waters and he caused dry land to appear. Because that dry land is the chosen environment of life, order, and peace. Because after all, that's where his own image bearers would live and thrive on dry land, not on the seas. And it's for this reason that, that the ancients, they, they rightly viewed the seas as dreadful places of disarray, as the abyss of chaos. You know, in our day, we, we love the beach. We take a nice selfie by the ocean, play beach volleyball, cook some hot dogs, and we enjoy the view. But actually, I would argue that we, as a general populace, we only love the ocean because we're actually so unacquainted with it in our modern society. And we have such little real experience with large bodies of water, professional fishermen and sailors aside, but I'm talking about the general populace. Because if you want to get to Europe or to Asia, you don't have to cross the Atlantic or the Pacific anymore. You just fly over it. And so it's easier for us to have a very rosy view of the seas. But the ancients, they had a more sober fear because they were such maritime people. They knew much better than we do the sheer dread of, of being stranded out on sea, something going wrong with the boat, and feeling this dark cloud of despair and hopelessness overtake you as you realize you're going to die a slow and miserable death, eventually plunging down into the deep abyss, and you know you can't do anything about it. This is why in the Bible, the waters represent chaos, lifelessness, uninhabited disorder from the vantage point of man. But in spite of that, the blessing of divine creation broke through as God introduced life, light, land, living creatures. Now, that's what happened in creation. But what happened in Noah's day? Why did God send the flood? Well, Genesis 6-5 tells us that God saw that sinful humanity was so utterly depraved that their thoughts were continually evil, and so God brought global judgment through water. But do you see the big picture of what God was doing and what God was communicating through the flood? Remember, on day two of creation, God took the watery chaos and created in its midst an expanse or a firmament, as some translations say, is basically a safe, waterless space within the waters. And he called this expanse heaven or sky. 
It's our planet's atmosphere into which God created dry land for us to live on. And by doing so, God had separated the waters into two groups. The waters underneath the sky or the expanse, which he called seas, the ocean, and the waters above the expanse, the details of which we are not told. But by this act of separation, God was carving out a safe place for life and order and the dwelling place for mankind. It's the troposphere and stratosphere in which we live. But when God sent the flood, he was effectively reversing this act of creation and judgment. Because as Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 says, that on that day, all the fountains of the great, great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. You see, the waters under the expanse and the waters above the expanse were now recombining. Earth reverting back to the watery chaos that it once was, drowning sinful humanity into the deep abyss of judgment and despair. You see, this is how the Bible depicts God's judgment. It's what theologians call God's act of uncreation or decreation. It's like a demolition of all that he did in Genesis chapter 1. Because God saw the chaos of man's sinful heart, the disorder and lawlessness of fallen human civilization. And so in his judgment, he was giving them over to the disorder that they lusted after, a life apart from God. And so in the flood, God withdrew his peace and he withdrew his sovereign grace that was holding all things together by the word of his power. You know, this shows us very, something very important. That life apart from God is chaos. Why do you think society today is devolving into this animalistic violence? It's because we've walked away from God. I mean, it's a horribly tragic thing, but in some sense, we shouldn't be surprised at this senseless rage and murderous, barbaric shootings. When as a society, we are doing everything we possibly can to cut every tie to our creator, even exalting ourselves against God and glorying in our shame, even calling it Pride Month. This is what happens when we try to live apart from God, disorder, senselessness, anarchy, these are ripple effects. You see, from the first book of the Bible, God used large bodies of water to depict and to communicate His act of judgment. It is the flood of His wrath, as it were. And this is what we all deserve. This is the consequence of sin, drowning in the flood of God's abandonment and judgment. However, that is not the end of the story of the Bible. Because God, in His exceeding grace and mercy, He makes a way to save sinners from His wrath to come. And the depiction of this salvation also involves water. Because remember, in the flood, God had mercy on this one man and his family, Noah. Now, what did God tell Noah to do? He told him to make an ark and to get inside by which God would safely carry them through the waters of judgment. God provided a way for Noah to survive 
the judgment of uncreation and arrive to the other side of the waters to a new safe haven, or in other words, a a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, as it were. That's why after 40 days, the water subsided after God made a wind blow over the earth in Genesis 8.1. Now the word wind in, in Hebrew is actually the same word as breath or spirit. It's reminiscent of the spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. And that same spirit hovering over and blowing over the flood, the waters, and the waters subsided. And the dry land reappeared, just like in the creation account. But in order to reach this haven of a new creation, they must undergo the outpouring of the flood, which no one can endure. And so God provided a refuge into which Noah and his family would enter by faith, trusting God's promise that the ark would carry them through the watery judgment and bring them to the other side unscathed. You see, this is what Peter was getting at in verse 20. That through the ark, eight persons were brought safely, not exempted from water, but through water, kept safe. All of this was a preview of God's saving work, delivering sinners through the waters of judgment. This was baptism prefigured, deliverance through wrath. In fact, this is not the only time God saved his people in this way. If you carefully look through the Old Testament, you'll see this picture repainted again and again. Now, I don't have time to go through all the examples, but let's look at just one more important example. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you recall, if you were at our Good Friday service, we had read this passage, and I mentioned that there was a detail in there that uh, was beyond the scope of Uh, our time on Good Friday, and that one day I will address it. Well, that day has come. And in verse 1 and 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be aware, or unaware rather, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. What in the world? Is Paul talking about? When did we ever see baptism in the Old Testament? Well, it was never verbally mentioned with those explicit words, but it was visually depicted in the Exodus. Because again, we need to focus on the big picture that God was showing. What was the mighty, iconic deliverance that God did to save Israel from Egypt? He parted the Red Sea and crossed them to the other side. But God didn't part the Red Sea because he realized, oh, I accidentally led them to a dead end. What do I do? Uh, You know, I mean, it wasn't an arbitrary spur of the moment decision. But it was a very purposeful orchestration to reveal his saving grace through Moses, whom the Israelites were following. Because remember, under Moses' leadership, the people of Israel were miraculously kept safe through the waters, which God supernaturally divided Again, by a strong east wind. Breath, spirit. And they crossed to the other side safely on dry land. But for the Egyptians, remember, they did not know the one true God of Israel. They did not trust in God. And so when they tried to cross the Red Sea, what happened? 
those waters that God had divided and separated for his people, they then recombined into chaos to plunge them into the abyss of God's wrath. Again, it was the divine judgment of God through an act of uncreation, as it were. You see, this is why it can be said by Paul that Israel was, quote-unquote, baptized into Moses. Because by following Moses, God's chosen servant, they all passed through the sea miraculously and safely, delivered from the watery judgment of God, which Israel deserved no less than Egypt. And so God's saving work through Noah, His saving work through Moses, all of this was foreshadowing the true baptism that would be revealed in Christ because it was all pointing to our ultimate deliverance through God's anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen suffering one, God's own son, Jesus. This is why God ordained the sacrament of baptism to involve water. Because just as Moses led Israel through the waters of judgment in the Red Sea, Christ is the greater Moses, the ultimate deliverer who leads us through the waters of eternal divine judgment. And when we follow Christ, those waters that should drown us in condemnation, they are supernaturally divided. And we are safe in the presence of Christ. He has brought us to the other side. He has brought us to dry land, to the promised land of blessing and fellowship with God. And just as God provided the ark of refuge for Noah and his family, so Christ himself is our heavenly ark, who receives sinners into himself, united to his own person, and shields us from the flood of divine judgment by taking it on himself while covering us from it. And that's why it's no accident that at Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River, remember, the Holy Spirit descended on him, it says, like a dove. Just like when the flood subsided in Noah's day and the dove that he sent out found rest on dry land after God's wrath had been fully outpoured and subsided. And so God was declaring to the world, Come and find a refuge in my son, and he will take you to the ultimate rest of no more wrath, no more judgment, the new creation, guaranteeing your entrance into the new heavens and the new earth, which he will consummate when Christ returns. And so you see, when we are baptized as believers underwater, we are effectively saying, I have gone down into the abyss of death the waters of judgment as I deserve. But I have not gone alone because I am in Christ. By faith, I have entered into the ark of his refuge. He has carried me down into the waters of judgment and he has safely brought me back to the other side, unscathed, raised to new life, to a new creation because he has endured the waters for me, covering me from the wrath that I deserve. You see, Christian, when you are baptized, although visually, from what we could see with the eyes of flesh, it was just you going down into the waters and coming back up, but spiritually speaking, in truth, it was not you alone. 
Jesus was there with you in the waters, holding you, covering you like an ark, bringing you down into the watery grave with him and bringing you back up with him in his arms of love. This is the vivid picture that baptism is portraying. And Jesus has given this sacrament to confirm that great love of his to you, to encourage you and to reassure you of his promise. It is finished. No more wrath. No more punishment. No condemnation for those who are in Christ, in his embrace. You don't need to fear God's anger, judgment, retribution, because you've already passed through it. And so you are to live now, not in fear of punishment, but out of freedom to love God, to obey Him, empowered by this assurance. This is what the sacrament of baptism is signifying and sealing. You see, baptism is like a wedding ring. When a husband and wife get married at the altar, they exchange rings. Now, I knew that growing up. That's what happens. But it was actually on my own wedding day that it hit me that the ring on my finger is not my ring that I put on myself to express my commitment to my wife. And the ring on her finger is not her own ring that she has put on herself to express her commitment to me. But as we exchanged our vows, I put my wife's wedding ring That's my ring to her. I put it onto her while saying the words, I, Sam, give you this ring as a sign of my never-ending love for you. That's how it works. And that, friends, marriage is a shadow of the gospel, of the love and union between Christ and His church. This is the purpose of baptism. Jesus calls His people to get baptized as as a way of giving us this visible and tangible sign to us for our benefit, for our assurance, as His vow, His pledge, I, your Lord and faithful husband, give you this sacrament as a sign of my never-ending love for you. I have taken you for myself. I have brought you into holy union and matrimony with me. I have taken you through the waters of eternal judgment. I have carried you in my arms to the other side. Therefore, there is no more condemnation. I will never leave you nor forsake you. On your worst days as a Christian, I will never take my love away from you. For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, on your best days and on your worst days. It is God saying, I promise to cause you to persevere unto the very end. And sometimes I'll bring trials into your life to do that. Sometimes I'll take away good things that you have to loosen your grip on this world. Sometimes I'll bring temporary suffering to help you long for eternity all the more. But I promise, and let this water baptism be a sign to guarantee this assurance that in your most faithful days and in your most faithless days, I will never leave you. Friends, this is what it is. Baptism. A sign and seal of Christ's love 
God knows how much we need this assurance every day. He knows the weakness of our faith. And that's why he's given us the seal of the gospel to secure us in his unconditional love. And so can I encourage you, Christian, cherish your baptism. Hold on to it tightly. Remember it again and again because it is meant to nourish your faith and strengthen you when you doubt and when fears creep in. When you are discouraged, look back at your heavenly ring, the glimmers of the sacrament, and be reassured of God's promises. Now, some of you this morning have yet to come to Christ by faith. And if that's you, understand this, that you cannot bear the weight of your sin. All of us must undergo the outpouring of God's righteous judgment. And we cannot withstand it on our own. And if you are without Christ, you will have no answer for your sins before God. But look here. Picture it for you. Paint it by God for you to see the immense love and kindness of Jesus. Come to Him. Hide yourself in Him. Trust Him for the work He accomplished on the cross to fully take on the punishment of sin by His death and resurrection. He welcomes the vilest and the poor. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. See, water baptism is is only an outward sign of an inward reality. And so for you, non-Christian, come to Jesus in your innermost heart. Confess your sin and trust Him to deliver you through judgment, and you will be saved. And finally, there are some of you here who may be an unbaptized Christian. Now, I have no idea who it is, if if there are any, but if you are a born-again believer, but you are not baptized, I hope you can see what you're missing out on. I mean, of course, the matter is simple. It's an issue of obedience. God commanded baptism, And well, unless you are physically incapable of doing so, or you were never given the opportunity to get baptized, like a thief on the cross, there are exceptions. But if not for that, there's really no good reason for you to not be baptized. But I hope you can see that it's more than just an issue of compliance. But baptism is for your blessing. It's for your encouragement. If you're a believer and not baptized, it's not that you've committed the unforgivable sin and that your salvation is now in jeopardy. That's not true. But more importantly, that's not the issue. But the issue is that for whatever reason, you're resisting this beautiful and powerful blessing from God. And maybe you're struggling in faith. And yet you're without this God-ordained means of grace, of comforting you of strengthening you and empowering you through your struggles. If this is you, Jesus wants to give you the sign of His never-ending love for you. And come talk to me and we can arrange a baptism service so that you might experience the joy and blessing of being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for revealing us in your word the wonders of your gospel. 
We thank you that you have not only told us of this good news, but all throughout every page scattered, hinted at, winked at from the law and the prophets and the psalms, all the writings. Lord, you have shown us the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Lord, help us to cling to him in faith. Encourage us with the gospel each and every day that we might live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.